The information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, all you magical people out there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I'm your host, Dustin McGinnis. I'm a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. So today we are going to be looking at Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapter 9, The Dark Mark. This is the chapter where this book really starts ramping up. After the excitement of the Quidditch World Cup, everyone eventually falls asleep. However, they are abruptly woken up by a frantic Mr. Weasley. They woke up to screams and hysteria going on outside the tent. When they exit the tent, they see crowds fleeing into the forest and a group of masked wizards shooting spells out of their wands. Sounds like the Irish have got their pride on. <laughs> Stop! Stop it! It's not the Irish. We've got to get out of here. Now! Get out! It's the Get back to the pocket, everybody, and stick together! Fred George! Jenny is your responsibility! Oh! Tents were on fire. People were being magically levitated upside down in the air. The crowd's hysteria and behavior got me thinking about how panic and paranoia and the instinct for self-preservation can lead some people to lose their humanity and moral reasoning. In survival situations such as these, some people will help others while some people will just trample over others to ensure their own personal survival. What do you believe is the root cause for this type of behavior and is self-preservation at all costs selfish? That's a really good question. What a lot of people don't realize is that our body's role is to ensure our self-preservation. And so sometimes the actions that we might take happen before we might have gotten a chance to think about what we're doing. In his amazing book, My Grandmother's Hands, author Resma Menachem talks about the fact that our bodies react before we can process the situation in our brain. And this happens in situations when we feel threatened. This happens in situations when we might feel panicked when we might feel attacked, not just physically, but also emotionally. For some individuals, their natural instinct might be to preserve their own well being or the well being of their family, 
And for others, it might be to protect other people. I don't necessarily think it's selfish depending on how it's played out. But I think that for some people who haven't had a lot of training in first aid response, for example, people who have not had any kind of first responder training, might be difficult to imagine what they would do in a situation if they or their family were to be in danger. It might not be a bad idea for some people to do almost fire drills to think about how they would go about things if there was a panic-like situation so that they are able to protect themselves and their family, but without harming other people, without pushing people out of the way, without putting people in danger. As strange as it might sound, rushing in a situation like it can cause more danger than anything else. When we're rushing, we don't have the ability to pause and then to allow our brain access to the information so that we can think about what to do next. The sensory input happens first, and only after that our brain will get a chance to think about, oh, I'm seeing this, I'm observing this situation, these are the steps that I can take. But when we are rushing, our body might sometimes make those decisions before our brain has gotten a chance to interfere, to think about the best possible option. And I think for many people that we were seeing as acting in maybe not the most humane manner, I think that's what was happening by them rushing to safety without stopping for a moment to evaluate the situation. I think they acted out of instinct, which caused them to take not the best action instead of the most informed response. Yeah. In the midst of chaos and panic, it is hard to be that person who stops and really analyzes the situation. You hear it here and there about some kind of clubs having fires and people trampling over others to get out and suffocating people on the way. I mean, it's it's a scary situation, but you don't know how you would react trying to survive. Certainly. And I think that's where doing active drills, ideally ones that involve actual movement in a similar way as fire drills are not only instructional, but involve actual movement can be most helpful in terms of learning to step back, to fight that instinct, to just trample over other people and run to the exit, for example, but also regularly practicing mindfulness skills in the face of the kind of chaos we're experiencing every day so that we can take a moment to pause and breathe and figure out our actions. Sometimes not jumping into action is the best thing that we can do. What do you think is the difference of someone who will stop and help someone in that situation and pick them up and try to help instead of just stepping over them? I think for some people, it's having had some first responder training that always helps. For other people, it might be having had the opportunity to pause to evaluate the situation to see what's happening. And for other people, it is their instinct to help other people. I think with the exception of gunfire, the instinct to pause can be a really important one so that we can see what's going on and what would be the safest way for everybody to get out safely. And that includes fire. If people are not rushing and trampling over each other, 
then chances are everybody will get out safely. Whereas if people start pushing, rushing and stampeding, more and more people are going to die. It's a very scary situation, that's for sure. So the group of masked wizards that are out there are Lord Voldemort's followers, and they call themselves the Death Eaters. It seems that their goal is to incite panic, chaos, but more importantly, to incite fear. The Death Eaters are levitating Mr. Roberts and his family up above them, upside down, and it seems they're targeting muggles and publicly humiliating them and torturing them. Can you discuss the role of fear and why it is such an effective tool for control? Sure. I think for many people, seeing other people being humiliated and tortured might, again, spike that survivor mechanism and in many situations put them on freeze mode or perhaps flight mode in terms of being too afraid to interfere because we might be afraid of experiencing the same treatment. This is a situation where bystander effect is really prevalent, where people see somebody being bullied, being abused in some kind of way, for example, and nobody might interfere for a while because people might be afraid of receiving the same kind of maltreatment. So I think that in this situation, some of the wizards might have panicked for many different reasons, right? From seeing the dark mark, some of the wizards might have been extremely triggered by this, especially if they were alive during the first war. And for others, there might have been this terror reaction at seeing somebody being treated that way. And so their survival instinct might have kicked in, turning off all reason or compassion. Speaking of fear, Harry, Hermione, and Ron run into Draco, who is completely unconcerned, and he's just calmly detached from this commotion that is going on all around them. He has his arms folded, and he's just sitting there with a smirk. And then he starts provoking Hermione. He tells her that because she's muggle-born, she'd better run before they find her. Could this just be Draco being Draco and taunting her? just because he's Draco, or could there have been a moment of kindness here where he was actually trying to get her to safety? You know, if I only read the Harry Potter series, I might be inclined to think that maybe Draco was just being Draco and he was taunting her and trying to add salt to the injury, if you will, right? Just make her feel afraid. But having read The Cursed Child and having seen the play, I don't know. I think that Draco has to act in a particular way in order to fit in with pure bloods, with Death Eaters, with his family. As far as what he actually thinks and feels, I I wish we knew. I'm not sure. That's a great question. (laughs) I mean, I'd like to think of seeing the best in people, but, you know, unfortunately, (laughs) Draco is kind of a, (laughs) a Draco. The group also run into a very frightened Winky. She was just terrified, but also she was struggling to push herself forward, almost like there was this invisible force like pushing back against her. Harry makes a connection that she probably didn't ask 
Barty Crouch's permission to leave their tent. So she's really struggling with that, much like Dobby did when he would say anything negative against the Malfoys. He thinks that she felt that she was in the wrong for fleeing for her own safety. The thought of how house elves are treated really gets under Hermione's skin right here. She compares their treatment to slavery. Ultimately, she's not wrong. But what makes this situation even worse is that Ron starts arguing with Hermione, saying that house elves are happy about their treatment and Winky is very happy about her role. And house elves are just generally happy about their role in this magical community. Hermione tells Ron that it's people like him that prop up rotten and unjust systems and are essentially part of the problem. What are your thoughts about Hermione's stance here and also those who think like Ron does about something as serious as slavery. Honestly, I agree with Hermione 100%. It is slavery. Elves are expected to work in wizarding families for no pay. They're abused. They can be beaten. They can be killed. They can be tortured in many different ways. And they essentially have no unions, no rights, no insurance, no health insurance, right? No doctors that we know of no days off and Hermione having lived in muggle world having studied human muggle history having learned about African-American slavery history I imagine and having learned about World War II has a pretty good idea about what slavery is and how we might be blind to it if it doesn't affect us directly. Ron, who was raised in the wizarding world, who had never learned about slavery, who had this exposure to elves being treated this way, and even said that his mom had always wanted an elf as if elves are property, as opposed to hiring an elf, right, or hiring somebody, right, to help with certain services. It's heartbreaking that for people who haven't learned it directly, people who haven't gone out of their way to understand, or people who haven't experienced it personally, they might think that what they're used to seeing is status quo and therefore the norm and therefore how things should be. And just because we're used to seeing racism, prejudice, misogyny, et cetera, doesn't mean it's okay. And I was really glad that J.K. Rowling talked about it here. I actually wish that it was a more focal point of this book, because I think that Hermione not only has a good point, but it's a point that we all should be paying attention to. Most definitely. I like that. It's the environments that we grow up in that somewhat dictate our views and behavior. After Winky flees into the forest, they hear a voice in the shadows, and this voice shouts out a spell, and they see this green beam of light shoot up into the sky. Then they see this huge emerald skull appear with a snake slithering out of its mouth. Hermione, being the studious person she is, immediately recognizes this symbol as the Dark Mark. It's essentially Voldemort's logo. What is that? Symbols can be so powerful and represent so much more than they're actually depicting. My thoughts immediately conjure up the swastika and the evil it now represents. 
Ron comments that it's just a mark and it's not hurting anyone. But the escalated fear and the panic of everyone around them seems to disagree with that logic. How can symbols like this trigger and hurt people? Symbols that have been associated with hate and violence, whether we're talking about the swastika symbol or whether we're talking about that KKK symbol, these are symbols that are tied to mass murders and slavery and abuse. And for people like Ron, we could say that Ron comes from a privileged family. It's true that he comes from a low income family, but he is nevertheless extremely privileged in that he is a pure blood and he has never been discriminated against in that regard, right? For being born to Muggle parents. In our world and the world outside of the Harry Potter universe, we know that these symbols are not just shapes. These symbols for many people are a reminder of what was done either to them or to their family members or to their ancestors. And they do cause harm. As a Jewish person, as a grandchild of four Holocaust survivors, all of whom lost family members in the Holocaust, I can tell you that symbols are not just triggering, they are damaging. And seeing more and more swastika symbols that we're seeing now depicted on synagogues and in general on walls, etc. These are damaging symbols. KKK symbols are damaging symbols. These are symbols of terrorist organizations, ones that have already committed atrocities against millions of people. And these are not simple shapes. And so Ron's statement comes not out of malice, but out of ignorance. And it is unfortunate that rather than asking questions to find out more from Hermione or somebody else, he digs his heels in and saying, it's no big deal, you're overreacting, essentially gaslighting Hermione as she's having a pretty strong, understandable reaction to this experience for any of us, when we see anyone having a reaction to a symbol of hate or to any kind of discrimination or prejudice, we need to be listening. We need to be asking questions. We need to be trying to understand instead of telling that person that they're overreacting because by doing so, we're contributing to the problem. Yeah, exactly. I'm not Jewish or anything like that. However, when I see a swashka on a synagogue or something like that, I'm triggered by it because I understand what the message is there. It's an evil message. It's an unkind message. It hurts my soul because I don't understand why people would want to invest the energy in something so negative against someone else. Symbols can hurt, man. It isn't just negative either, right? It's violent. That's what a lot of people don't understand is that the symbols by their nature, by their associations are violent. These symbols are an infliction of pain. It's sad. And of course, the Death Eater who conjured the Dark Mark just apparates and runs away. This is a lot like the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis who spray paint swastikas on synagogues or on people's garages in the middle of the night and run away. It's cowardly. 
it's cowardly to run away from these convictions that they're having. And what are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. I think it's cowardly, but I think it's even more cowardly to create it in the first place. I think it takes a coward to draw a symbol of hate, whether we're talking about swastikas or the dark mark. I think that it takes a coward not to understand what the symbol means and not to talk to the people that were affected by the symbol, but instead to continue propagating this violence and abuse. Because sitting with a survivor, sitting with the person that has been injured by this, that would be really difficult and presumably painful and probably terrifying for somebody that comes from maybe a more privileged or maybe a more discriminatory group. But that would be the courageous choice, is to sit down and really get to know somebody. Majority of people who are a part of hate groups have never talked to somebody, really talked to somebody, had a heart-to-heart conversation of the individuals of the group that they oppress to try to understand their points of view. And I think that's the biggest cowardice of them all. After the Dark Mark is produced, a group of 20 ministry wizards surround Harry, Ron, and Hermione. The wizards are all pointing their wands at them and even shoot a stupefy spell at them. That's my son! Ron! Harry! Hermione, are you all right? Coming back to Harry. What have you cancelled it? Crouch, you can't. Which is a lie! You've been discovered at the scene of the crime! Crime? Barty, they're just kids! What crime? It's the dark mark, Harry. It's his mark. Voldemort? Those people tonight in the masks, they're his too, aren't they? His followers. Death Eaters. Follow me. Um, there was a man. Before. Uh, there. All of you, this way! A man, Harry. Who? I don't know. I didn't see his face. The wizards, led by Barty Crouch, immediately accuse them of conjuring the dark mark because they're next to it. This is, of course, a ridiculous accusation. What causes someone to shoot off false accusations and display so much mistrust and paranoia towards people that are obviously not the cause of it? You know, and again, I think this is that reaction that sometimes our body can produce where we're not even analyzing the situation. Amos Diggory is the one that's creating the most kind of ridiculous accusations, starting with Harry, accusing Harry of conjuring the dark mark. I think that it's a really clear case of somebody in panic mode, right, being so driven by their emotional state that they're not able to take a moment and think clearly to try to assess the situation, to ask questions, to find out more. Yeah. Hermione tells the wizard that the person who conjured the dark mark ran off into the trees. And after a little bit, Amos Diggory goes looking and comes out of the woods carrying Winky. Amos and Barty continuously call her elf. They just call her elf. Hey, elf. Instead of by her name. What makes someone treat another living person this way? And why do you think that people like Ron don't see this injustice, but Hermione does? Again, I think what we're seeing here is a clear case of dehumanization. Diggory, talking about Amos Diggory, 
and others don't see Winky as a being. And at one point, when Hermione's talking to Ron, she tells him that by all of them calling Winky Elf, especially Diggory calling Winky Elf instead of by using her name, it's almost like they don't see her as human. She even brings it up. And it's Ron that says, but she's not human. She's an elf, basically making that distinction. And I saw such a powerful parallel to how a lot of white people have treated Black people and Indigenous individuals and Asian individuals in terms of not seeing them as human, not seeing them as the same. It's a really dangerous practice because we lose our sense of humanity when we do that. So to see Winky as different, to not use her name, it closes others to compassion, to the possibility of having compassion toward her. She's terrified. She is trying so hard to be of service that she believes she's doing everything that she can to help other people. She's also absolutely terrified by the chaos of what's going on. And I think she's like a child that has been through a very abusive childhood. I think she's always terrified of being abused, neglected, abandoned. And she's always terrified of being bad, quote unquote. And I think that she fears being rejected more than she fears of losing her life. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is that she tries so hard to be of service, to be good, and it's never good enough for Barty. Yeah, it's so sad (laughs) that she's stuck in this situation. And the group of wizards start accusing her of conjuring the dark mark, which is super ridiculous. The accusation almost immediately dies, but it's still got to affect her. Barty Crouch ends up giving Winky clothes and freeing her. And this is a punishment for her. He says that she left the tent after he told her to stay put. He doesn't want a house elf that doesn't follow his instructions. That's messed up because she probably would have either ended up with a bad injury or dead if she stayed in the tent because the tents were just being destroyed. And after freeing Winky, she's just devastated (laughs) at the idea of being freed. Why does Winky react with such heartbreak when Barty Crouch frees her like this? What Barty and Amos Diggory don't understand is that for Winky, this was the only family she'd known. For her, this is not freedom. For her, this is abandonment. So for her, this is almost like an abusive parent that shuns and kicks out their child, for example, coming out as gay or something. This is a punishment. This is punishment by rejection, which is the cruelest form of punishment of them all. Reading it this time around, compared to the first time I read it, I really saw Winky's heartbreak and it broke my heart. I wished I could have given her a hug. I wish I could have taken her in and just let her live with me, you know, as a roommate, not as a slave or a servant, but as part of the family. Yeah, She's little so Winky sweet. Friend. She's so sweet. She's so lovely. All she wants is to be loved and accepted. She's terrified of being in trouble and of not being good enough. And it's because of the abusive environment that she'd been in. All she ever wants is what any of us want, to belong. Therefore, this was the cruelest kind of punishment that Crouch could have given her. Yeah, it was sad. Someone like Ron would be like, well, she's free. What does she have a problem with? 
well, it's bigger than that. <laughs> Poor Winky. Yeah. She needed to be freed, but she needed to be given a home. She needed to be given a sense of family, a sense of acceptance. I think, if anything, she needs to be rewarded for her courage in terms of always trying to do the right thing and for her loyalty. Yeah. Ah, poor Winky. I, I guess know. that's a good place to end this episode. I mean, that's pretty much the end of the chapter. Thank you so much for joining us today on Harry Potter Therapy. Again, my name is Dustin. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Janina Scarlett Official or Shadow Quill on Twitter. For all of our listeners out there, we are sending out free signed copies of Dr. Scarlett's book, Harry Potter Therapy, an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section. To enter the drawing, all you have to do is tweet about this podcast with the hashtag Harry Potter Therapy. We will choose one lucky listener every month to receive their free copy. Unfortunately, due to high postage costs, international listeners will not be eligible for this promotion. Stay safe out there, everybody. Stay kind, stay magical, and take care. <laughs>